Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com or on Twitter, at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. The Supreme Court issued three more opinions this week, inching them closer to the end of the term. As we head into what is hopefully the final month of the term, the justices have 26 cases left to decide. That sounds like a lot, but it's pretty typical at this stage in the term where arguments are over and the only focus is getting these opinions turned out. So we've still got some big ones we're waiting on, including the battle between religious freedom and LGBT protections, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, and the latest Obamacare case, California versus Texas. Both of those were argued in November, so we could get those at any time. Uh, The next opinion day for the court will be next Tuesday following the Memorial Day weekend. Now, the three cases that the justices handed down this week were not um, among those high-profile cases. Um, Indeed, some of the most interesting actions taken by the justices this week happened on the so-called shadow docket, that is, in cases that are resolved outside of the court's normal process of hearing arguments and issuing an opinion. So, Jordan, why don't we start there? Uh, There was a bit going on on what's been dubbed the court's death docket, uh, those cases dealing with capital punishment. So tell us about that. Right. There were a couple of those this week. first one involves the firing squad, believe it or not. And this is the case of Ernest Johnson. He had raised the Eighth Amendment challenge that Missouri's lethal injection process will cause him cruel and unusual punishment when he's executed. He has a seizure disorder where after a brain tumor operation, he's at risk of severe and painful seizures. And that brings up this strange business that we've talked about before of an inmate having to propose an alternative method of execution when they're raising a Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual challenge. They need to propose something that will be better or less bad. And in this case, Johnson, as other inmates have, had proposed nitrogen gas, and then he proposed the firing squad, which sounds odd, but is actually thought to pose less of a risk than lethal injection. And so he's not the first one to do that, and we've been seeing more activity in the states that still have the death penalty of bringing back the firing squad potentially for that reason. And so Johnson wanted to amend his complaint to propose this firing squad alternative, but the Supreme Court denied review in his case, which will effectively uphold an appeals court ruling that will let him be executed without litigating the issue and potentially facing what he's framing as this potentially gruesome execution. And as we've been seeing in these cases, a pattern emerging since Justice Barrett joined the court of this 6-3 type of ruling where the three Democratic-appointed justices dissented. And then we also got another order in a capital case, but this one on the heels of last term's McGirt opinion dealing with tribal land out in Oklahoma. What happened in this one? That's right. Oklahoma against Bossie is this new case, and it's a follow-up to the McGirt decision from last year, as you mentioned. And in that McGirt case, the court said in a 5-4 decision by Justice 
Gorsuch, then joined by the then four Democratic appointees on the court, that the Creek Nation's reservation in Oklahoma was never disestablished by Congress. And so that meant for the purposes of prosecuting serious criminal cases that the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute people like McGirt who committed their crimes on Indian land. And so this newer case from Sean Michael Bossy, an Oklahoma death row inmate like McGirt was, sets up what could be a decision potentially clarifying or limiting McGirt, depending on how you're coming to look at the case. And so Bossy was convicted of murder in Oklahoma state court on reservation land, just like McGirt was. And after McGirt, an Oklahoma state court said the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute Bossy because it was committed on Indian land and the victims in the case were Indian. And so he would have to be released. And Bossy was just going to be released to the federal government. He actually wasn't going to be let free necessarily, but still Oklahoma officials asked the Supreme Court to halt the state court ruling from going into effect while they challenge it at the Supreme Court. And so this brings up potentially a couple of issues that we could be seeing argued next term. Uh, The first one is procedurally that Bossie and others like him in his situation shouldn't be able to raise McGirt challenges And the second is that McGirt shouldn't apply to non-Indians like Bossie. And so the Supreme Court granted that stay this week, again, over dissent from that same Democratic-appointed trio that dissented in the firing squad case. And so I think one interesting um, thing that you mentioned is that it wasn't as if this guy was going to walk, he was going to go into federal custody. Uh, But that kind of puts the Biden administration in a tough spot, right? Because... Um, they've come out against the death penalty, whether or not they would seek it here. Um, that's kind of really the ball game. it seems like, at this point. Yeah, when it comes to the Biden administration and the death penalty so far, they haven't done anything to signal that they're not still into it like the last administration was. They haven't set any new execution dates, but just this week, the Justice Department was arguing against Dylan Roof in the Fourth Circuit. As far as we've seen, they haven't said anything different in the case that's going to be argued next term, the Boston bomber case, or Nayev, they're still opposing him and seeking to reinstate his death sentence. So despite Biden running against the death penalty, they haven't actually done anything to actually go through with that, aside from not setting new execution dates. And if anything, they've continued with litigation positions that are consistent with the prior administration. So we got these three opinions, Kimberly. Tell us what happened in Palomar, Santiago, Guam, and Hotels.com. Right. All three of these cases are unanimous, and I think that's really a result from what I mentioned up at the top was that these are really lower-profile rulings, which really just, you know, they need some kind of an answer, and they're not going to get a lot of, you know, back and forth from the justices on these. So first up, as you mentioned, was U.S. versus Palomar Santiago. This was an immigration decision written by Justice Sotomayor. The case affects a handful of former green card holders who are being charged with unlawful re 
reentry into the country, despite the fact that their original removal orders were invalid. So here, Mexican national Palomar Santiago was a lawful permanent resident when he was convicted of driving under the influence back in 1998. He was ultimately deported for committing what's called an aggravated felony. But after he was removed, the Supreme Court said DUIs don't qualify as aggravated felonies, meaning that if Palomar Santiago had had his uh, deportation case considered after the Supreme Court ruling, then he would not have been deported. The question here is whether he can challenge his underlying removal order now that he's being tried for re-entering the country unlawfully. The Ninth Circuit waived some of the requirements set out in the statute um, to challenge the original removal order, and the Supreme Court said uh, no way. Uh, The text is clear. Palomar Santiago and others like him aren't excused from the plain text of the statute. Uh, Another case that seemed to be resolved along the text was Superfund case, Guam versus United States. This one, again, a unanimous opinion by Justice Thomas. Uh, It involves a landfill, a giant landfill in the middle of Guam, which has some toxic stuff in it. Um, It was allegedly used by the U.S. Navy as a dumping site and then by the territory of Guam. Uh, No surprise, it's got to be cleaned up and it's expensive. And Guam wants the United States to pay for part of the $160 million cleanup. But the D.C. Circuit said Guam's claims were time-barred. The Supreme Court reversed, allowing Guam to pursue their claims. So it's they haven't won just yet. It just means that they can go forward. And then finally, on Thursday, we got another unanimous ruling, again decided by the text. This one was San Antonio versus Hotels.com. This one involves appellate cost awards, which are an exception to the so-called American rule that requires each party to bear its own costs in litigation. The case gets into the nitty-gritty of, you know, an allegation versus taxing of appellate costs. The bottom line, though, is that the court limited trial court discretion to modify these cost awards ordered by appellate courts. But the court said that circuits can change that default rule if they want. The case here involves a $2 million cost award, which is a pretty big outlier as far as this award goes. Um, And it was against Texas municipalities that sued online travel companies related to their tax collection practices. But... Don't worry, Texas listeners, the case was taken on a contingency basis. So it's the lawyers, not the taxpayers, who are footing the bill on this one. So let me set up this case that we're going to talk about with our guests before we bring her on. So Kimberly, we've talked about the qualified immunity issue before on this podcast. We've talked about how the Supreme Court is not interested in taking it up, at least in an argued case. And the court this week continued that pattern, rejecting review in multiple cases that raised qualified immunity-related issues. Of course, qualified immunity is the doctrine that serves to keep officers out of court for civil suits for alleged rights violations, often unless there's been an exact precedent of an officer doing the exact same thing alleged, no matter how egregious. So there's sort of a catch-22 there that plaintiffs have had difficulty piercing through. And the case we're going to talk about this week deals with one where the court declined to review an issue related to municipal liability in Stewart against Euclid, and the question of whether plaintiffs can sue cities for police misconduct even if the individual officers are immune under qualified immunity. And it looks like the answer to that question after this week's denial is it depends on what circuit you live in. So let's bring on our guest to talk about that. Isha Anand is Supreme Court and Appellate Counsel at the MacArthur Justice Center. A former clerk to Justice Sotomayor, she litigates police, excessive force, criminal defense, habeas, 
prison conditions and other civil rights cases around the country. And she's joining us today to talk about one of those cases and the broader immunity issue that the court has been dodging. Isha, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. So tell us about the case of Luke Stewart that the court turned away this week. Yeah, so the city of Euclid, Ohio has a use of force training program for its police officers that is, to put it mildly, uh, extremely troubling. So highlights include a cartoon of a police officer beating a prone unarmed civilian with the caption, Euclid Police Department, colon, protecting and serving the poop out of you. Uh, There's a clip from a Chris Rock sketch. When you see flashing police lights in your mirror, stop immediately. Everybody knows. If the police have to come and get you, they're bringing a chicken with them. Um, And just in general, the tone of the training really trivializes police use of violence against civilians and particularly against black civilians. So it turns out, maybe unsurprisingly, uh, Euclid's police officers don't always obey the Fourth Amendment. So in 2017, police officers find Luke Stewart sleeping in his car. They knock on his window to wake him up. He wakes up and he starts to kind of drive away pretty slowly. One of the officers gets into the car, closes the door behind him. So he's now a passenger in this car traveling at 25 or 30 miles an hour. Um, And then two minutes later, he shoots and kills Luke Stewart at point blank range. Luke Stewart's family sues the individual officer and the city of Euclid. And the Sixth Circuit finds, unsurprisingly, police officer violated the Fourth Amendment. Also, unsurprisingly, because as your regular listeners know, uh, courts interpret qualified immunity protections for individual officers incredibly narrowly to require pointing to a published circuit court case involving precisely the same set of facts. So also unsurprisingly, the Sixth Circuit says qualified immunity for the officer who shot it. Explains, Stewart has pointed to no cases in this circuit involving an officer being driven in a suspect's car, much less a case that shares similar characteristics such as the level of speed, aggression, or recklessness, right? So this officer did something um, perhaps more foolish than any other officer to grace the pages of the Federal Reporter and therefore gets qualified immunity. So all right, all of that is um, heartbreaking, but sort of something that we see all around the country. This next part is sort of what got MacArthur interested in this case and what we were asking the Supreme Court to intervene in. So in addition to suing the individual officer, Luke Stewart's family sued the city of Euclid, saying, look, this training program you've got, it encourages, or at the very least, doesn't do a whole lot to discourage police use of force. And so at least a jury could find that the training program caused the Fourth Amendment violation. And the Sixth Circuit says, because there was no clearly established law, not only can you not sue the individual officer, but you also can't sue the municipality. Now, that's, uh, that's contrary to black letter Supreme Court law. The Supreme Court held decades ago in a case called Owen versus City of Independence that municipalities, unlike individual officers, don't get qualified immunity. The idea is the city is not making a split second decision, shoot, don't shoot. The city has the luxury of time and reflection. They, someone designed this PowerPoint. Um, now, the Sixth Circuit said, don't worry. We're not giving the municipality qualified immunity. We're saying you have to prove the municipality was deliberately indifferent to hold it accountable. And you can't prove deliberate indifference without pointing to clearly established law. 
Um, so that sounds an awful lot like giving a municipality qualified immunity. Uh, we asked the Supreme Court to step in on this case um, to prevent this kind of atextual, ahistorical, clearly established law analysis from bleeding over into yet another form of liability. So I think people are used to hearing about qualified immunity and thinking about it in the context of holding individual officers responsible, like the officer in this case. But what's the significance of not being able to sue the municipality? Yes, I think there's kind of two pieces to why being able to sue the municipality is important. The first is um, a lot of scholars who do a lot more empirical work than I do um, have made it pretty clear that there will always be another Derek Chauvin or John Mattingly as long as police departments themselves aren't training officers effectively, aren't vetting them effectively, aren't disciplining them, aren't investigating police shootings, in short, aren't doing the things to ensure that officers know they're going to be held accountable. And so, yes, an individual plaintiff might hit the jackpot and be able to hold an individual officer liable. But they, at the end of the day, um, until we track, tackle some of these kind of broader systemic issues, there's always going to be another police officer. So that's the kind of first piece. Um, the second piece is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the payout for most of these cases is coming from the same place. That is, individual officers are indemnified in most cases by the cities that employ them. And so if qualified immunity is going to foreclose holding an individual officer liable, the Supreme Court said in Owen versus City of Independence, the answer is hold the municipality liable. You still get made whole plaintiff. There's st you're still imposing the sort of incentive scheme to do better and avoid constitutional violations. And this kind of end run around Owen takes away that option from plaintiffs as well. So picking up on your first piece that you talked there, I wonder, um, you know, how we should think about the city of Euclid's reputation. So recently, just last month, we saw that that city entered into a $450,000 settlement stemming from uh, an incident that same year, 2017, a traffic stop that went viral showing a Euclid police officer repeatedly attacking a person who was initially pulled over for a traffic stop. And, you know, while he was initially fired, he was later reinstated. And I guess what do instances like these tell us about, you know, the city's current ability to hold its officers accountable? Yeah, so I think this points to kind of two, two related problems. The first is kind of the problem of randomness, right? So um, police officers engaging in violence on the same time frame, who went through the same exact training program. And because of kind of the vagaries of what cases have made it into the federal reports before, sometimes the city's held liable, sometimes the city's not. Exact same training program, right? The thing that the city did in each case was equally culpable or not culpable, depending on how you look at it. But in some cases, you know, and you can see this in, in the Sixth Circuit's case law, a month before the Stewart case came down, this, this Lamar Wright case came out that held the city of Euclid, said the city of Euclid could be held liable, again, because of just the vagaries of what happened to be published in the federal reports previously. Um, and so the first thing that sort of tees up for me is this idea that by interposing this kind of clearly established law screen between an incident and holding a city accountable, you can have a city being held accountable sometimes and not other times 
not because the city did anything differently, but just because of how exactly the kind of carelessness and violence the city encouraged through its training program played out in a particular instance. And, you know, the second thing this raises for me is kind of the crux of this Owen case I'm talking about, which is, um, you know, it says in Owen, the Supreme Court says, look, we think that doing it this way properly allocates costs among the three principles in a 1983 cause of action. So the innocent individual who is harmed by an abuse of the government is assured he will be compensated. The offending official, so long as he conducts himself in good faith, may go about his business. And the public will be forced to bear only the costs of an injury inflicted by the execution of a government's policy or custom. So there's this idea that uh, there's an innocent individual who should be made whole, and then there's the question of who should make them whole. For better or worse, the Supreme Court has said that this should be the municipality, not the individual officer. And by taking away that that ability to hold the municipality liable, um, uh, courts that are sort of on the wrong side of this split got that Owen opinion. So Isha, obviously when an opinion comes down, we'll look at it and try to figure out what the implications are, what the impact is. But even when a court denies review in a case, there's effectively an impact there too, right? So what, for example, in this case, is the impact going forward, at least for the time being, of the court refusing to step into this issue? Yeah, so, you know, folks in the civil rights community have thought for the past few years that the Supreme Court's going to do something about qualified immunity, right? The liberal justices have expressed concerns about the way it's applied to insulate officials from accountability. Justice Thomas has joined their ranks saying from an originalist perspective, this analysis really makes no sense. Um, And so there have been this flurry of asks, everything from overall qualified immunity altogether uh, to kind of chip away around the margins of, you know, don't get rid of qualified immunity, but let's think about what we mean when we say specific published circuit court precedent, how specific do we have to be? Or you know, don't get rid of qualified immunity, but let's at least limit the scope of interlocutory review. Or as in this case, right, um, at the very least, don't extend this qualified immunity analysis that has been so criticized to this context of municipal liability. Um, and I think by denying all of those petitions, um, the Supreme Court is sort of signaling balls in someone else's court here. So the conventional wisdom has been the Supreme Court is really hoping that the ball is in Congress's court. And I think we're seeing some activity there, some real potential for to reform the ways in which both cities and individual officers can be held liable for violations of civil rights. Um, and I hope for the sake of families like Luke Stewart's that we can get some kind of legislative fix. But on the flip side of the ledger, the Supreme Court has spent decades not only creating this doctrine that was never in the statute, but then enforcing it by really, really aggressively policing and reversing any circuit court that had the temerity to deny qualified immunity to officers. And so, you know, I think we see some windows of possibility here. This fall, the Supreme Court summarily reversed a case called Taylor versus Riojas, in which the Fifth Circuit had granted qualified immunity to some correctional officials who had held petitioner in a cell covered in human feces. And the Supreme Court said, look, some constitutional violations, they're just obvious. You don't need this kind of published circuit court precedent. And it reversed without oral argument or briefing. 
And, you know, that sort of summary reversal is a really big deal. I mean, it's historically been reserved for cases where a circuit court had denied qualified immunity and the Supreme Court disagreed. That was the posture of the majority of those reversals. But that kind of one-off signal without sort of taking a case to make any broader statement about clearly established law and its status, it kind of means that circuit courts continue to have free reign to think about um, sort of new and ever more untethered from the statute ways in which this qualified immunity, clearly established law analysis prevents recovery and protects defendants. And then given that backdrop, and maybe this is a bleak question to leave off with, given whatever Congress might do or might not do, what do you as a litigator do? Do you just keep trying to bring the petitions like the ones that you've been bringing? Do these refusals by the court change anything at all? Could it? What What do you do with all this for now? Yes, I, I, that's a great question. I think one a lot of people are asking themselves. And I think there's at least three paths forward for a litigator, right? So the first is, one place we have seen a lot of movement is in states. So state legislatures have stepped out kind of ahead of the federal government in passing some uh, bills that give more room to hold police officers and in some cases municipalities accountable. So the first question, the first thing that I think civil rights litigators are doing is turning the state courts. I think a second thing that civil rights litigators are doing are sort of trying to think about how do we make the most of this Taylor versus Riojas case. So like I said, this Supreme Court um, reinvigorated an exception that's been on the books for a long time, right? For decades now, the Supreme Court said decades ago that there are some kinds of constitutional violations that are so obvious you don't need to find that that you know needle in a haystack published circuit court case with precisely the same facts. Um, and so when the Supreme Court said last fall, no, that exception still exists, I think that kind of creates a window for litigators to think about how can we frame a constitutional violation as obvious? Um, and then I think the third kind of the question going forward is, you know, we have a number of justices who are now on the record saying that this whole qualified immunity analysis is bunk. And that has to mean something. And so whether the Supreme Court is waiting for Congress, whether it's waiting for more scholarship to percolate, there have been a sort of slew of articles on either side of the debate about exactly who qualified immunity applied to at common law and how much of that was incorporated into Section 1983. Um, or something else altogether, I do think that at some point, given how pervasive qualified immunity is, how many cases it applies to, the Supreme Court, for kind of credibility reasons, is going to have to step in where its own justices have expressed concerns that this is a made-up regime and sort of clarify its status. So that was interesting. I think a lot of good points that she made. One thing I wanted to note is that you know, one of the criticisms we hear about qualified immunity is that it prevents the development of the law by allowing courts to kind of skip over whether something violates the Constitution um, and have them simply say that, you know, there wasn't a clear enough case on point. But that didn't happen in this case, at least with the qualified um, immunity for the individual officer, right? The appellate court actually found that the officer had used deadly force in violation of the Constitution. Um, so interesting to see if this could be one of those cases that kind of clearly establishes that law. As I mentioned, the Supreme Court's next opinion day will be next Tuesday. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com.
For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.